suggestion for our podcast name, Dan. Okay. Brandon is crap at Korean. <laughs> I watched your video. And what did you think? I thought it was awesome. I really enjoyed the music. I love the peppy spunkiness of K-pop music in mm-hmm. general. I caught three words. Ooh. I think they said at some point, guaja, meaning junk food, but I could totally be wrong. It could just be something that sounded like that. <laughs> I caught chicken and I'm like, oh wait, that's in English. It's not the Korean word dalk. It's actual it's chicken. Actual chicken so in I'm English. like, oh, yeah. I caught that. I think I got a guy calling for his mom to give him water and she gave him a radish instead. I think he said, oh ma, muljam juseo. And then they gave him a moo instead, which is a cabbage, not cabbage, a uh, radish. radish yeah. I think I caught that, but it could have, instead of being mul, it could have been some other moo because there are a lot of cognates in Korean because it's based yeah. off of Chinese, mm-hmm. but without the tones. And Chinese, you use tones to differentiate which of the various different things that all sound the same are you asking for? Well, you give it a tone. Korean doesn't have the tones. And so just a lot of homonyms, I guess, is the correct yeah. word, not cognates. A lot of homonyms where it's just like, which Kim do you mean? Do you mean Kim as in gold? Do you mean Kim as in a person? It's yeah, just... which is interesting. How well have you kept up your Korean? Pretty awfully. Like I was okay at it, right? Mm-hmm. But I was never fantastic at it. Two years for me was not enough time to get fantastic at a language. And I was in Seoul and everyone speaks English. And so speaking Korean, like if we spoke English, then people would want to speak to us to speak English, not to actually, you know, learn what we were teaching and stuff. So we only Mm -hmm. spoke Korean, but I spent a lot of time around people who spoke English really well, even Koreans. And my Korean, like I was, I would say good when I got back, I was able to, you know, take the tests and test out of all the lower Korean classes, but not good enough that I felt comfortable talking about topics I didn't know a lot about even mm-hmm. then. Like if you would start talking politics, I was just lost the whole time. Yeah. But beyond that, I just don't have the time. There are many things to do in life and keeping up a language. I'm not going to be like, do you know how, okay, here's a tangent, Okay. tangent time. Tangent. You know how people are like, I'm just not good at names. I, I've stopped saying that because I'm like, I realized the people who are good at names that I know work hard to be good at names. It's not that they just are magically good. Like my wife is good with names because she put effort into learning how to remember people's names mm-hmm. and takes the time and the care to remember what people's names are. And instead, when the rest of us say, I'm not good with names, what most of us really mean is, I'm just not willing to invest the time and resources into learning this skill yeah. and memorizing names really well. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's less, you know, I wasn't as good at languages as other people. It's more of it, or even like the excuse of you don't have as many chances to speak Korean as you might Spanish or something. Yeah. And it's, it's more along the lines of I did not have the time and mental space in my life to invest in maintaining Korean. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. because there's a lot of things going on. I spent, like I said, two years in Mexico. And learned Spanish well, and then lost a lot of it when I got home. But seven or eight years ago, my books took off in South America. Right. And so now I go down there. With the exception of 2020, I've been to South America or Mexico once or twice a year. Mm -hmm. And so my Spanish has improved so much because now I'm, like you say, investing the time to make sure that, you know, when I do an interview or something that I know what to say. My wife was in Bolivia. We're talking about this all. We all serve missions, right, for Mm -hmm. the church. This is why we were two years in these places. Yeah. She was in Bolivia. She's kept up her Spanish. She loves speaking it and finding opportunities to use it and things like that. She was a Spanish teacher for a number of years. And better for keeping her Spanish, she taught the ESL class at her uh, Mm -hmm. middle school. Um, And it was very useful to have a fluent Spanish speaker in that class. She was not as helpful to the Koreans as she was to the people who moved in from the Hispanic world. But she really loves it. Whenever we get an invitation to Spain, she's like, oh, we're going to Spain. We're going. No problem. That's That's the big pie in the sky thing that you and I have been planning for years now is when are we going to do our tour of South America? Yep. 
jointly. I know it's not Spanish, but I finally have a new Brazilian publisher, which is making me happy because cool. I've been getting complaints. That's good because nobody has a good Brazilian yeah. publisher right now. So if some yeah. if, if their uh, their publishing industry imploded, yep, three or four years ago, pretty hard. So I'm glad they're back. That's really good. So here's an interesting one. This is publishing news. I don't know if people will care about this, but I recently sold, quote unquote sold, I don't know, rights in Iran, Persian rights. Like sold to a publisher. To a publisher. Now, this is odd because Iran does not recognize international copyright treaties. Mm -hmm. And so they are allowed to, in country, publish any book that they get by the legal code of the land. But a publisher actually wrote to us and said, hey, we kind of want to do this the right way. We don't have a lot of money, but would you actually license one of the books to us to publish? We're like, oh, wow, that's awesome. But we have a question that we're not sure how to answer is, does this put us afoul of international sanctions on Iran? Meaning, can we sell rights? Can you sell rights to them? To them. Oh, and then you're like supporting a a regime that our government is currently sanctioning. Yes, and I don't know the answer to that. Actually, Pat Rothfuss wrote to me and he's like, so uh, what does your agent say about this? Because he heard that I was selling there Mm because he had similar opportunities of some sort, I don't know. And he just wanted to know. And I'm like, I actually don't know, Pat. We just said yes. Maybe we should find out if this is legal before we actually do it. That's awesome. There's another author mm-hmm. that you and I know whose name I won't say on this thing in case mm-hmm. they're suddenly in violation of international trade law. Yeah. Who has sold to Iran. Mm-hmm. And the pitch they gave to him sounds like a slightly more aggressive version of the sales pitch they gave to you, which mm-hmm. was, we're going to do this anyway. So you should accept this very low offer. Yeah. After I can give you that name and you can That's, contact Yeah, him. them. I will I will yeah. do that and say, Hey, uh is this is this legal? We don't know. We hope it is. We said yes. Man. Please, FBI, CIA. FBI, they're gonna bust down the door yeah. and seize like, all your assets. Seize seize the, the two hundred dollars or whatever it is that we've been no, sent. They're gonna take everything. Yeah, that's true. It's yeah. CIA is uh, about to get the biggest collection of magic cards. <laughs> They've been looking for their way in <laughs> they want for my years, cards. and finally right. they're like, I've got our foot in the door now. Forget He's me. made a deal with Iran. Get Brandon's cards. We'll have the best cube ever. <laughs> Speaking of things that could get us in trouble, we were thinking maybe today of talking about books that we will never write. Books that we will never write. For whatever reason, a book that you have considered writing, because this was my topic, I'll go ahead and go first to give okay. you a little time. For one reason or another, there's a part of you, like, so listeners, you got to understand that as a writer, one of the things you start doing is everything that occurs to you, that you experience, that you Mm -hmm. see, every thought that goes through your head, there's a part of your brain that says, wait a minute, wait a minute, is this a book? I could turn this into a book. Anytime you complain about a movie, you're like, ah, your brain will be like, "Mm, if you did it right. What would that book look like? Mm-hmm. Anytime you're passionate about something, there's a voice that says, so, Brandon, you really like salt, eh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think is we can write about the salt connoisseur. Is there a book? And so one of the things that I am oddly fascinated by is hyper-competent people mm-hmm. in situations where hyper-competence was not expected, right? Okay. So, for instance, the version of this book that my brain's like, oh, you should write this book. And the rest of me is like, no, this is dumb. This is boring. Is my wife really likes The Great British Baking Show, uh-huh. right? Which is called The Great British Bake Off. As do I. In the rest I love of the world. it. It's a great show. And my story that I will never write is they accidentally let on an amateur chef who is a genius at cooking. In my head, this person is like, he's actually in my head, he's a Japanese man who has immigrated to England. Mm -hmm. And when he was young, his family died and his kids really liked cake. And so he took up baking as a hobby and he has no life outside of working at his job, which is like some big firm, like he's a Mm -hmm. lawyer or probably an accountant, right? And he's really good at it, but he has no life outside of that except baking. And then he accidentally gets let on because they don't figure out 
And then everybody else is making these like messes of cakes that just don't come together. And you go to him and he in like three hours has made this like ginormous wedding cake the size of a table with like intricate designs and things like this. That's just like beautiful. Does his background in accounting play into this? Yes, because he's, he's able to plan out his schedule. Yes. Yeah. I need to get X amount of mm-hmm. batter prepared. Oh, it plays into it even more than that. Like he's just a genius with this, but he doesn't accept it. He's too humble. And, okay. you know, his co-workers have always mocked the baker. And mm-hmm. so he doesn't treat it as serious. And then at the end, his, like, boss comes to a taping and sees the stuff that he makes. He's like, you must no longer work as an accountant. You need to go be a baker. Like, just the idea of, you see, like, example of decent, example of decent, example of decent. And then, holy cow, how did we let this person into our amateur baking show? Because mm-hmm. the thing he has now created, like in my head, they're like, make something out of chocolate. And you've got like, you know, chocolate cupcakes. And then you go to the next one and they've maybe like, you know, made a ganache and stuff like that. And you go to him and he's like made a full-size sculpture of a woman pouring chocolate out of chocolate from one <laughs> hand to the other. Uh, and they're like, oh, and then this one, it's ridiculous, right? It's a dumb book because it is just watching hyper competence and enjoying it too much there's yeah. no conflict in that right yeah. there's a character but well, there's no so, conflict so here mm-hmm. this is not what we intended this episode to be yeah. about but i'm gonna oh no you're gonna this idea a little bit i'm this? gonna workshop this oh okay so this guy is actually mm-hmm. a spy okay okay uh-huh. it's like the rock it's dwayne johnson okay and yeah. he is uh, trying to follow this other guy who's gotten onto the show and he has to stay with him the whole time. Oh, and yeah, uh huh. And so his like CIA handlers or whoever, MI6, mm-hmm. they get him into the show as well because they're like, yes. you have to watch this guy. We mm-hmm. think that you know the Russians are going to contact him during the taping, right? So you've got to go. They might assassinate him. He's, yeah, he's figured out things that he doesn't realize he's figured out, but we can't tell him because that might compromise mm-hmm. the mission and stuff and so now our main character he's got to stay on he can't get kicked can't get off, the kicked show, off the show so he just has to improve and so yes. he's got a couple of you know ace in the hole kind of there's someone in his earpiece that's telling yeah. him how mm-hmm. to mix a, a well no it just starts glaze. off where he just assumes he can do it because right yeah like, and so he and just completely botches the first yes. week except uh-huh. somebody else botches it worse like yes. cuts their own fingers off yeah and so he's like, I, I made it through the first week. So clearly, this is harder than I expected. I need to buckle down. And his incredible skill helps him to become an incredible baker on the fly. Okay. Okay. So this the main character is the expert baker, and the other character. It's, you're not going to contrast. See, this is a completely different. Oh, different this is pitch. completely That's different than what you were talking for about. For one of those mid-budget comedies, like Kindergarten Cop sort of thing. They just did one with Dave Bautista, didn't yeah. they? In right. fact, we just need to get this greenlit. We could have this script kicked out in a couple of months. We actually, yeah, <laughs> we we need to we need to see. Yeah. We just uh, need a good title. The Great British I don't know. I can't think of a good pun. <laughs> the Great British Spy Movie? <laughs> the That's Great gonna... British Spy Off. <laughs> That's going to get us sued for uh, trademark infringement. I know. But see, then we can license it through the show. Oh, and, and so you're going to actually get BBC put... support. And we have Paul Hollywood have and Paul Hollywood what's her it. name, yes, as the real judges. Oh, wow. You're going to go go hardcore in this. Oh, yeah. Okay. Go all the way. In fact, this is no longer Dwayne Johnson. I'm just going to get Daniel Craig and make this oh, yeah. the next Bond movie. No. <laughs> So we have to license All right, MGM. British Baking Show right, and Bond. And we have to get Daniel Craig on board. Oh, Craig is leaving. And so this is our chance to get Idris Elba as James Bond on top of everything Actually, else. Actually, just Idris Elba not even as Bond doing this because, you know, everyone agrees except the people in charge. He should be the next Bond. So we just, yeah. you know. Yeah. So we just get him. We, we make our him. own pseudo Bond. Yes. And I want the, uh, the person that he's there to spy on and or protect is uh, Richard Ayuade. Okay. From the IT crowd. Okay. So, there you go. Call us, Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, man. Oh, Dan. Okay. Have we added to our list of books we're going to write that we... We need to talk about the list of books that we're going to write because the list of books that I will never write... Mm-hmm. The main one that I desperately want to write and never ever will is super super depressing, and I'm not gonna oh, wow. crash our 
for mood, for you that's saying that something ebulence. right is yeah. it more depressing than what you've published oh yes so much that's do you insane. want to hear about I, it we've got to hear because it's, it's you so can't dark. hold this back now so i am obviously fascinated by true crime and i love it and my whole you know flagship horror series i'm not a serial killer is about someone who is obsessed with serial killers and that kind of thing and i have two different times attempted to outline and write a book that is inspired by but not based on uh-huh. the killing of james bolger i have no idea what this is this is one of the worst crimes in history, in okay. my opinion. Okay. Uh, this happened in Maybe the 80s. don't give us too many details, but yeah. Okay. I, I won't give a, a lot of okay. details, but uh, mm-hmm. it happened in the 80s, and it was two little kids, like seven, eight years old, okay. who kidnapped and murdered a three-year-old. Oh, I have read about this one. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that story. And I'm not going to go into any details, because it's a horrible crime. But and it's... It's so weird because it was two kids. Yeah, it was two kids. And I have read so much about these two kids and about their lives and about where they came from and who they are. And there is a very fascinating, very depressing story to be told there. And I don't know if anyone other than me would be interested in reading that book. You're going to get a lot of comments saying yes. But I'm amazed by how... Easily, you convinced me it was more depressing than any book you've written. It would be very difficult to do it, even inspired by rather than based on. It would be difficult to do it without feeling like I was somehow cashing in on some other family's tragedy. Yes. That is terrible. The ideas there, and and also, I mean, the two little boys, like I said, they were seven, eight, nine years old when they did this. I feel personally that they're horrible victims as well and that's the angle that i would take in the story and there's a lot of people in the world who would not want to read that version of the story yeah that's even darker yeah Mm -hmm. so anyway wow yeah yeah okay that's uh there we poured a big old bucket of ice water on the ebullient campfire that we had created that's uh that's very different from my goofy (laughs) story about a person making a chocolate sculpture with flowing chocolate in the middle of the great british big show okay so Mm -hmm. let's lighten the mood back up again okay so brandon and i've known each other for 20 plus years and way back in college we would talk about the books we were going to co-write one day when we became authors because we were not published at this point yeah the first one which mm-hmm. to me is still like the holy grail of, I would love to see this. We were going to do, this is a convoluted idea, so you got to bear with us, audience. Uh, Shall we step them through how we came up with it? Because I don't even remember. Because the original premise was just a kind of, steampunk's the wrong term for the era, but a steampunk Moby Dick type story. Like, yeah, like an epic fantasy Moby Dick. An epic Moby fantasy Dick. Moby Dick. That's just, it started kind of a little bit normal. Mm-hmm. But then one of us was like, what if it was written by Melville and it was this lost manuscript and it was a science fiction, a fantasy mm-hmm. written by Melville and we could pretend it's this lost manuscript. And then I don't like, know like how he the- wanted to write an epic fantasy. Yes. And then he, at some point, his editor convinced him, no, yeah. you need to make this realistic fiction instead. Right. I bet we came on that because I often say that Moby Dick is the most fantastic, most like an epic fantasy classic that I've ever read mm-hmm. with world building and all of these things. But then it got even weirder. Yeah. So then we decided that we were going to have this rather than be written by Herman Melville, this was going to be written by his contemporary, Abraham Lincoln who really loved Moby Dick and wanted to write epic fantasy fanfic of it. How did we make that leap? I don't uh, know. That, this was before the Abraham Lincoln yes. Vampire Hunter stuff. It's before they ruined it. Yeah. Yes. This before somebody else came along and did our idea worse, and now we can't do it anymore. Yep. Because uh, we were going to be super serious about this. This was not camp. This was going to be... We were going to do it straight. Yep. And we were also going to... Treated again as a lost manuscript that someone had found. Yep. And then the entire thing was going to be annotated by an extra character who was like Cecil, the, Cecil G. Bagsworth III, who found this manuscript and uh, 
attributed it to Abraham Lincoln, and then it, the whole thing was filled with annotations of like, oh, well, this part probably relates to this aspect of his life as modified by this cool thing in the book. Cecil, who is mentioned in the Alcatraz books. And in the, Blacker Darkness. Yes, Both the, of us have used mm -hmm. Cecil. As an editor, and yes. Yeah. Which means that uh, the Alcatraz books and A Night of Blacker Darkness take place in the same universe. They do, yes. That <laughs> that makes perfect sense. It actually does. <laughs> this was such a bad idea. Most of you are not thinking, why aren't they going to write that idea? Most of you are like, oh, you're smart to never write that idea. Yeah. But there are a lot case, of you who are thinking, yes, please write that. It sounds hilarious. The main it reason be, yeah. is that it became a fad, right? Yeah. Well, and also... It would be funny for four or five pages. Yep. After which point, we're taking one of the longest genres in the world, and we're doing a pastiche version of one of the longest books in the world, and we're taking out any jokes that might make that bearable. Yes, and instead writing it with Abraham Lincoln's voice, which he has a really great narrative voice mm -hmm. for his writing, which... English majors find fascinating, and we would maybe find it fun, right? The other main reason I'm not going to do this is it's just way too much work, right? It would be so much work. I do these in my books occasionally. There's a, a Regency romance pastiche in the Stormlight Archive. At one point, a character's reading a book. Mm -hmm. I did Faulkner when I had a character who was hyper-intelligent and magically so have his thoughts, I went to Faulkner, right? I'm going to write okay. this like Faulkner because that feels right to me. I'll occasionally do things like this for just a chapter. Yeah. But doing a whole book as Abraham Lincoln, it, trying it to- would, It would be all the work of an epic fantasy. More. Plus all the yeah. work of a novel adaptation, plus all the work of a historical fiction, plus all the work of an academic- Yes. Treatise. For six people, probably. Yes. Yeah. And it would be, you know, extra hard because collaborating is actually much harder rather than easier. It is. To write. So. Yep. So that's one so of our failed reasons. projects. Not failed. Maybe we'll do it someday. Yeah. That we will never write. But we have more of these. We were going to do a sequel. Yes. It was Samurai on Mars? Yeah, it was Kurosawa. Yeah. Someone was doing a Kurosawa fanfic but did Seven Samurai with a spaceship and stuff. We didn't get very far in that one. Yeah, but it and was it was some other person's... I can't remember yeah. if it was going to... I don't think it was Abraham Lincoln. No, because it was a Kurosawa contemporary instead. Yeah. It was like a screenplay that was like, you know, written by Hitchcock as a fanfic of Kurosawa <laughs> or something like that. It oh, was man. even a worse idea. We, it was. We don't mm -hmm. have that one nearly as well developed. Nope. We uh, once tried to, this is kind of embarrassing. I don't know if you want me to bring this up. We tried to write a Da Vinci oh, Code yeah, parody. We did. We actually sat down, we plotted out, and tried to write and sell yes, a, a Da, da Vinci. Vinci Code parody. This is back it when terrible. we neither of us had any money, and we're like, how can we make livings as writers? And we both kind of hate the Da Vinci Code. But mm. that's part of the problem is the best parodies come from a place of love. Yeah. And so... Parodying something that we both disliked. Like, I don't hate the Da Vinci Code. I'm exaggerating. Mm -hmm. Da Vinci Code was not our thing. If you love the Da Vinci Code, good for you. I'm glad you have a book that you love, right? Yeah. It just didn't work for us like it did for a lot of people. So we're like, let's make fun of this. And yeah. then it wasn't funny. And it was kind of bitter. And it wasn't well written. And yeah. Well, yeah. and we were trying to sell it to Moshe, yeah. who has a very, very specific sense of humor. Yep. We were trying to model it on Board of the Board Rings. Board of the Rings was our main example. And like you said, Board of the Rings friggin' love yep. Lord of the Rings, yep. the people who wrote that. Mm -hmm. And so... That's the biggest flaw we had, is that yeah. we picked something that we both were meh on mm -hmm. to do a parody of. And I'm so glad that, you know, Moshe's just like, no, don't do this, guys. It's like, this is not funny. This, this is a bad idea. And, and we're like, oh, okay, work. it's a bad idea. But that was back, you know, when the comedies we complained about, we were writing one of those, yeah. right? I'm so glad that super bad. Nothing ever came of that. I'm okay, glad that we But speaking of historical fiction. Yes. Here's another book that I'm never gonna write. Okay. So in actual history, and I love this, there was a brief period right after Europe came over, Columbus came over and kind of found America that was yeah. already here. And soon after, surprisingly soon after. China arrived. Asia came over. And I don't remember the exact 
dynasties involved, but the governorship the, the of Japan had just gone through a major upheaval. Okay, when was this? 1492? Uh, this was Cortez era rather oh, than Columbus okay, era. So this is, okay. So this is like what? The Meiji Revolution probably. Yeah, I, it yeah. probably was. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is that historically, in the real world, there was a period of history where the Aztecs were still in charge of Tenochtitlan. Yep. And it was full of samurai and conquistadors and Aztecs all at the same time. And somebody desperately needs to write a book about that. I am not the person to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't have the time or the historical expertise to do it right. But that sounds amazing. All of these refugee samurai fleeing Japan, crossing the sea, finding work as mercenaries, working yeah. for the conquistadors as they were like destroying right the from Aztec. a Japanese perspective would be Oh man. I, I thought you were gonna go with what if Europe had never arrived and Japan did. Mm-hmm. You know, one of those alternate history yeah. things. That's definitely a good idea as well. There's a lot of history of yeah. you know Asia arriving in South America. In Peru, for example, they have had Chinese influence in their culture for so long that the classic grandma's house Sunday dinner is a stir fry. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I love. I think that's so cool. And that's not something that a lot of people know of how much cultural mixing has happened in South America. That reminds me of a story I will never write. Which which is is? similar in that I don't have the expertise to write it. I thought one day, wouldn't it be interesting to have alien invaders come land? And then what they're going to do is they're not going to take over by conquering. They're going to take over through the legal code. They're going to go and they're going to say, by the common law, whatever your laws actually say, Mm -hmm. of America, if we take this land if we're stronger than you and conquer it then it's ours and we're going to prove in the courts that that is what your legal code says and then since we're stronger and more more powerful than you you just have to accept that so just our history of imperialism comes back to bite us yes but number one i don't know that i have the nuanced understanding of the the situation Mm -hmm. and also the law it would have to actually be a legal thriller yeah where you really play into what the law and they'd have to like look at actual case law and precedent and look at the treaties america broke and all of this stuff and be written kind of as a grisham-esque legal thriller with a science fiction element and number one i think that there is just no audience for that Right? This is the Kang and Kodos run for president episode of The Simpsons. Yes. As written by John Grisham. Exactly. That is it in a nutshell. Yeah. Sounds awesome. For someone else to write. But yeah, there has to be a very specific person yes. with a very specific set of expertise to write that. So here's here's one of my other historicals. Mm-hmm. At the height of the kind of Napoleonic Empire in France and Europe, because, you know, at that point, he controlled most of it. Perfume comes from, I mean, European perfume, Mm -hmm. originated or was popularized in the city of Cologne, uh, which is currently in Germany, but it's historically been back and forth across the border. There, at the height of that Napoleonic era, a bottle of Cologne brand Cologne would go for scandalous amounts of money, ridiculous quantities. And so they actually employed people. And when I went and did a little tour there when I was living in Germany, they just kind of tossed this off as like a cool side note. And it blew my mind. They actually employed professional sniffers who would travel over the whole world trying to smell out counterfeit perfume and then stop people from selling it. Wow, professional sniffers. And so the world kind of globe-trotting perfume anti-counterfeiter squad, where it's, you know, the guy who is the perfume expert, and then he's got a bunch of muscle that travels with him because this is incredibly high-stakes money at play. But Cologne brand, Cologne was being sold as far as, like, China. It was all over the world, and... Somebody had to go around and find the counterfeits and then enforce the law 
before there was an international law. That is a much better story than mine. That sounds so yeah. cool. But again, I would have to do a ridiculous amount of research to be able to do that one correctly. I still tell myself that I'm going to do it one day. I probably won't, but... You know, this kind of raises a specter for me, something mm -hmm. I realized recently. And I don't think I have talked about this. I've talked about it with friends and maybe in other settings, but I've never talked about it on this podcast. The specter is when I was in my 20s, unpublished, I could write anything. <laughs> and there was always going to be room in my schedule to write the new cool idea that mm -hmm. I had come up with. And I would write it down. And many of them I wouldn't get to, but a lot of them I would get to. And anytime something really interesting and cool came along and captivated me, I could basically get slotted in next, right? Yeah. As I became a professional with deadlines, the ability to do that decreased, right? I would have to find windows and time to write, and I still do and did write offbeat things as they occurred to me, but much less. A couple of years ago, it occurred to me, now that I'm in my 40s, I am not going to be able to finish those stories. I'm not going to be able to write a lot of these stories that in my 20s, when I put in my notebook, I'm like, I'll get to that someday. That's a really great idea. And recently, it's more like, I will struggle and will fight and will make it happen, hopefully, to finish the Cosmere before I die. Yeah. Right? That is mm -hmm. like my goal now. Finish the Cosmere, get it all done before I'm in my 70s, right? So that by the time I'm the age that George is now, I will have finished the Cosmere so that I don't have to worry about retirement age and having all of these book deadlines. I mean, and I've yeah. finished my life work. I can still keep writing, but... That's going to be a race mm -hmm. because of the books that I want to be the Cosmere. And that means that all these other wacky ideas, they will never get written. Not just the dumb ones, but the good ones. <laughs> and there is a melancholy that attached to my realization that, no, I don't have the time to write these stories. These stories are just never going to get written. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of the saddest mathematical formula which Jessica Day George taught me, where you can calculate how many books you'll read before you die. Because, mm -hmm. you know, and yep. just the fact that that's finite, because like you say, we used to not think that anything yes. was. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is because we're mid-40s now, and we are confronted with the specter of mortality. But we do kind of have to come to terms with the fact that no, there's a finite number of books I'm going to read. There's a finite number of books I'm going to write. It's really kind of sad to think about. Yep. It's cool ideas. Never will find a home. It'll never come to fruition anywhere. Do you want to hear another one that I'll never write? Yep. So I actually thought of this one in the car driving here, which is funny because I didn't know we were going to talk about this when I was driving here in the car. But this is what being an author is like, right? Like you yep. said, we're always thinking of things. People will ask us, where do you come up with your ideas? Ideas are the cheapest part of this. We have more ideas than we will ever possibly be able to use. That's what I should sell as NFTs, pertinent to our last episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, so what if there is a guy who is starting to see messages just around, maybe on the radio, hidden in the static, things like that. Wake up, you're in a coma. You need to wake up. But the thing is... These messages are not targeted at a specific person. Like this guy sees them, his neighbor has seen them, and it eventually becomes unmistakably obvious that these are all over the world. They're like hidden in natural features. Wow. They are a core part of the world we live in, which means that someone is in a coma and dreaming all of this. This is like solipsism, the novel. Mm -hmm. And so there's people who want to find who is this person who's asleep, which one of us is real and is going to wake up. And then, of course, there's a huge group of people that's like, no, we can never find this person because then we will all cease to exist. And so they begin this whole like terrorist campaign to destroy means of communication. People on the outside are trying to contact this person through the Internet. Well, we're going to bring down the Internet. 
We're going to make sure that this person is never woken up because then we will all cease to be. That's a really interesting take on it. There's a Star Trek episode kind of like that. <laughs> Beverly Crusher. But yeah, there is, isn't uh-huh. there? Yeah, but very different sort of thing. That's a that's actually a very good idea for a story. Can you pull a novel out of that? Like that feels shorter to me. If I were to novel that, yeah. I would take kind of the extreme makeover route uh-huh. of make it a globe-spanning epic, several different characters and POVs with different agendas, and then watch the downfall of civilization. Right. And if makeover had been like successful, a huge bestseller, <laughs> it was successful in that it's a good book. That's true. Right? Yes. But if it were the book that people were offering you seven-figure deals to write something similar to it you would write this Mm -hmm. is it maybe the fact that you've already done this once and you found that this was not a highly marketable combination yeah it does like you say it feels more like an episode of the twilight zone or something rather than a whole novel nice uh, spec script for black mirror right something like that Mm -hmm. now i do want to mention we had in the last days of 2019 in the early days of 2020 um a studio that was going all in on a TV series pitch for Extreme Makeover. Wow. They were going nuts. They had actually commissioned mm-hmm. little bottles of hand lotion that they were going to hand out in all of their pitch meetings when mm-hmm. they were trying to take this around. And then COVID happened. And, and then the movie industry yeah. collapsed. So no, I, it hasn't collapsed. It's uh, Yeah. It's it has hiatus. reformed, is mutated yes. into mm-hmm. something very different. We had really solid... TV work in place Mm -hmm. for Makeover and for John Cleaver. And I don't think either of those are going to happen now. At least not those people in those groups because everything has changed. All of my options have basically lapsed as well. Like not all of them, but a bunch Mm -hmm. of them just ran out. The Reckoners ran out and stuff because the pandemic is certainly a big part of it. But the fact that streaming services like Disney entering as the gorilla heavyweight champion of you know whatever mix your Mm -hmm. metaphors however you want to the industry is change the industry right and everyone's responding to that still and quibi failing as apparently only the people writing the checks didn't realize that would well and quibi failed but i think that we are in the early stages of another cable boom basically Mm. When cable TV became a thing, and all of a sudden, instead of four channels, there were 400 channels, there was a sudden massive need for content. And that's what we're seeing now with the 900 different streaming services that are out there. And so I do think this is a good time for authors to be selling projects, like Shadow and Bone just came out. Mm -hmm. They're out there. It just hasn't been my stuff yet. Right. (laughs) Well, it's a good time, but it's also, in some ways, it's a good time if you want to make some money out of Hollywood. It's a bad time if you want to make a lasting property that has cultural impact. That is true because, you know, using that cable metaphor, Mm -hmm. nobody watched 394 of those channels. And it was like when the cable TV sort of renaissance happened right before streaming killed it, right? It was like a 10, 15 year evolution of this until finally you had your cable channels creating, you know, your AMCs and whatnot, creating this really great content and dramas and things. That all happened after consolidation and after the Wild West period ended and things like that. You had your culturally relevant and impactful pieces of storytelling. Not that there weren't any back then. But the ones that we remember, you know, the golden Mm -hmm. age of TV, the Sopranos and the Breaking Bads and the Deadwoods and all of that, that came... After the craziness. Yep. So that's true, which is too bad, I guess. Yeah, that's kind of my worry is it's like a bunch of those Quibi shows are just fantastic, right? The the Mm -hmm. roster of people they had making those is just unbelievable. And I bet the shows are great. I bet they could have had real cultural impact. But it turns out that people don't want to watch in the way that... yeah. Jeffrey Katzenberg thought they wanted to watch, which good for him for trying something new, right? It is, I think, a reasonable conclusion to come to, the one Mm -hmm. that he came to. Quibi was basically, let's take YouTube, Mm -hmm. 
but let's try to do it with professional stuff and tell long stories and youtube is definitely a huge thing and possibly even the future of media but Mm -hmm. it didn't want to be an old thing at the same time that it was being a new thing have i told this podcast the story of my meeting with jeffrey katzenberg uh no because i've never heard it oh it's pretty fun so back in the early days of my career we sold alcatraz versus evil librarians to dreamworks animation Mm -hmm. back when you know he was head of dreamworks animation and this was Right after like Lemony Snicket got big and they were mm-hmm. looking for similar sorts of things. Yeah. But then the Lemony Snicket movie came out and didn't do well. And that was a pretty big deal for all these other things like me and Artemis Fowl and stuff like that yeah. that people had been considering. It's sort of middle grade wacky story. Now, they eventually decided not to make Alcatraz. You can see some of the concept art in one of their uh, big artwork of DreamWorks. They had some concept art for it on mm-hmm. one page. But... For a while, it was looking really good, and they were doing a lot of film, and they had good screenplay that I really liked. They had storyboards, character models, stuff like that. Ooh. So during one of my visits there, they had a meeting scheduled for me with Jeffrey Katzenberg, you know, the K and SKG. Okay. Katzenberg, you know, founder of DreamWorks. I'm like, oh, that's going to be cool. I get to meet him. And they're like, yep, the meeting is at this time, and it's 15 seconds. And I said, 15 <laughs> minutes? They're like, no, no, it's 15 seconds. I'm like. You keep his schedule to the second? And they're like, yeah, we do. He is going to be walking from this place to this place. You are at this intersection. And he will say hi, shake your hand, and in 15 seconds be ushered on to the next thing. And it <laughs> happened exactly like they said. So it great. Was on the schedule. Now, I am now a very busy person who schedules things and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I've never had to have something scheduled to the 15 second mark. So I don't know if he was just that incredibly more busy or if this was their way to make sure that people just knew to leave Jeffrey Katzenberg alone, which is more Mm -hmm. what I suspect. You get to shake his hand and say hi. That's what we want to do. That's what you want. He doesn't need to hear about the property of the project you want to pitch him or things like that. And I assume they had just had too many instances of that. And Mm -hmm. so his schedule probably wasn't to the 15 seconds everywhere. It was just... It was just, we're giving this author 15 seconds so he doesn't make a fool of himself. But it's hilarious. I've got to to tell you the end of that movie deal, though, because it's so much fun. I actually really like this studio exec that was on it. He treated me really well all along. I really enjoyed him. I enjoyed the process. But at the end, what DreamWorks had going on at the time, as explained to me, was that they would work on a couple of projects at once. And they put a lot of development time into them. It wasn't like a studio that would have like 50 options going. Mm -hmm. They would only have a couple of them. And what they would do is they would basically be in competition with each other, not truly, but kind of, and they would bring three pitches at a time to the kind of editorial team, Katzenberg and others, Mm -hmm. who would hear this six months, three pitches. It wasn't like this was happening every week. Um, And then they would come up with one of three answers for each of these pitches. One didn't get each of the answers, but they Mm -hmm. could either say, no, we think it's not working. Or they would say, green light. Or they would say, rework it and try again. And you got one, rework it and try again. If you got a no, you were done. If you got a green light, you know, you're on. Mm -hmm. And so we had gotten our no, rework it and try again. And this was just a month before the option lapsed. My first movie option, which, by the way, was for me at the time, just what I was living on, right? It was yeah. like 35 grand an option period for That's so a like nice option. It's a nice option for a new author. Yeah. So they paid 35, 35, and then I think 35 again, right? So it was 35 for the first 18, 35 for the next 18, and then maybe 25 for the next 12 or something like that. But just really good money for an author who's was making about five grand a year off of his books at the time. And so I would not, you know, go back and say no to that deal. Like that was, that was really helpful, but it was our time. It was our time for our second pitch. And I was actually going to my class. I was on BYU campus. I just parked in like the, the parking garage that's down there by the Marriott building. Mm-hmm. And I was walking through the parking garage, waiting for the phone call. I knew it was going to come and I got it. I answered. And the first things he said is Brandon, great news. I'm like, we got a green light. We got a green light. Now, Dan's laughing because he knows Hollywood. There is no bad news in Hollywood. Yeah. It's all great news. And so this is like my first taste of true Hollywood-isms where I'm like, we got a green light. He's like, Katzenberg loved our script. He said, it is the best script he has ever been shown. 
which is so Hollywood also, because everything's the best. But yeah, I didn't know yeah. that at the time. I'm like, like, Katzenberg's been in this business for a long time. Mm-hmm. He's made some really great films. If this is the best script he's ever seen, then we are golden. And I'm like, it's the best script he's ever seen. You said it's great news. We've got a green light. He's like, actually, no. He said no. The team said no. We're letting the option lapse. It's dead. I'm like, <laughs> that is... What? How? Such how is Hollywood this great news? Do. And he's like, "Well, because the script is so good and everyone liked it so much, it means that you know we can we can take it and do with it what it should be done." Because they're like, it feels more like a live action script, and that's why they passed on it. And this, so this is actually really good news. We didn't accidentally make a animated film when we shouldn't. We mm-hmm. can go make a live action film, which is what this script really needs. And that was just which so of course Hollywood. never which went never, anywhere. Never went anywhere. Yeah, not even a peep of interest. But oh, and again, man. if you're listening, studio exec who knows who, who you are, I don't blame you for this at all. This is Hollywood culture, right? Mm-hmm. And he was trying to let me down easy. And this is how they talk. You know that you always want to be upbeat and positive, but they do it to a detriment. The whole culture is yeah fake positive to a detriment. And I'm used to New York, right? Where the second time I saw Moshe. Right. The first time, you know, I went out, we signed deals. And then it was just mm-hmm. a couple of years later. Second time I went out, I saw Moshe said, wow, you've gotten fat. He's a New Yorker. He's like, were you always this fat? Brandon, eat a salad. I need you to live a long time and keep writing books. That was Moshe's like the second ever. This is oh, how New man. Yorkers are. Right. I you submit Moshe. a book and the editor's like, this needs work. This is pretty bad. Even the editors who are not as blunt as others are like, yeah. Eh, mm, we're not satisfied with this book. They'll yeah. actually tell you. They're very straightforward, but mm-hmm. they're also very nice. Yes. Because the other side to the, you know, boundless optimism of Hollywood is boundless paranoia. Yes. Everyone is out to get everyone else. Everyone is looking over their shoulders all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly rare in my experience that that kind of thing happens in publishing. Yeah, it really doesn't. The cheapest way to get your idea is for you to write it. and Cheapest so people, way for them to get your idea. Yeah. yeah. P- people don't steal ideas from each other. I mean, I'm sure it has yes. happened at some point. There are some famous plagiarism lawsuits, that, and we're not saying this doesn't happen, but it's yeah. not pervasive enough, and people are not paranoid about it. Authors understand that their skill in telling the story is what everyone is interested in, mm-hmm. and the publishers understand that... You know, you can be straightforward with an author and tell them what you think, and you will usually have a better experience for it than sugarcoating it. And yeah. no, nobody is constantly cushioning egos yes. against yeah. disappointment and sadness. Uh-huh. Okay, so I'm going to tell my paranoid Hollywood story. Okay. Ready? So since since we've apparently transitioned from books we'll never write to movies we'll never make, several years ago, when Partials had just come out, Brian Singer... Oh, okay. Bullet dodged? Was, was, yes, bullet dodged, definitely. <laughs> but at the time, he had just come off of X-Men, yep. and I think he was in the middle of all this stuff. Anyway, I was down in San Diego for Comic-Con, and my agent set up a meeting for me to meet, not with him, but with some of his assistants. Right. A couple of dudes who were kind of in charge of acquiring the properties, and they had an option, and they wanted to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so I met them, and it was basically just a pure get-to-know-you thing. It wasn't 15 seconds. I think it was like a half an hour. Mm-hmm. And it was, hey, tell us about yourself. Tell us what kind of stories you like, blah, blah, blah. They asked me my favorite movie, and I said Jaws, because Jaws is clearly, of course, my favorite movie. I teach classes Jaws about Jaws. is a perfect movie. It is. We were going to talk about that. If you were wondering what happened to them talking about perfect movies, we decided we didn't only want this to be a movie podcast, so yes. we're going to do that So eventually. we're going to go back, and we're going to mm-hmm. talk about... Perfect movies. Mm -hmm. Jaws is recognized worldwide as one of the greatest movies of all time. Yep. One of the most flawless scripts and executions thereof. And then, a couple of minutes later, the conversation was flagging a bit, and I said, well, we talked about my favorite movie. I should talk about my favorite TV show. Yep. Which at the time was Breaking Bad, because we Mm -hmm. were right in the middle of that. Yep. And as soon as I said that my favorite TV show was Breaking Bad, the temperature dropped in the room just like the frozen joke you were talking about before except this was attitude rather than you told a a non-funny joke they both got this really kind of dark look on their faces and paused just long enough that it was uncomfortable and then one of them said did you research brian singer beforehand so that you could tell us that his favorite things are your favorite things (laughs) 
And so I'm his like, favorite movie was Jaws, and his favorite TV. Well, I mean, show was... his company is Bad Hat Harry. It's it's oh, that's okay. a line from Jaws. Mm-hmm. He clearly loves Jaws. I had no idea that he also loved Breaking Bad. And honestly, in 2010 like or whatever this was, yeah. everyone loved Breaking Bad. Right. Yeah. Like if his favorite movie and favorite TV show had been something weird and obscure, then Mom sure. and Dad Save the World. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I'd said, you know, I love Mom and Dad Save the World and I love this really obscure like Vietnamese cop yeah. drama, mm-hmm. then yeah, obviously I'm trying to get in his good side by lying. But one of the best movies ever made yes. and what was at the time the most popular show on television. Yeah. And it just, it was done instantly. <laughs> and the conversation was over because clearly I was some kind of conniving Machiavellian schemer. That's so weird because that's what they do. I know. And like, I don't know what it was about this. Why but would... The mood soured or instantly. It, it's like, he's not important enough to be doing this or something or didn't he know he should have picked brian singer's second favorite television show everybody knows <laughs> you lead with the favorite movie and then pick the site or the wife's favorite television show and uh you know i i don't think that that is the reason the option never got made mm. and like you said we're glad that he didn't end up making my movie but it was the weirdest thing there's so many weird things about hollywood but we barely touch on that world, so we can be happy that we live in the publishing sphere where the worst thing that happens is that people argue with us over the definition of the word podium, which Moshe really did quite oh, a bit. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Moshe beat that into me, and I, to this day, will still say lectern instead of podium. all the time instead of podium. But I do think that our podcast could be called... It's not a podium. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Dan throws water on the conversation with. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm telling a happy story about Hollywood. And then you bring up a famous abuser. The most depressing crime. Yes. And the most depressing crime. Oh, my gosh. Not a bad title. I think that one's in the running for. (laughs) I I don't know how to say it. Dan brings the room down. Dan ruins everything. (laughs) Dan ruins everything. This has been Dan's ruin everything. Dan. (laughs) I ruined this has the been outro. Brandon Ruins Outros. Thank you for listening. <laughs>